This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So over the past <clears throat> few Monday nights over the fall, um, I've been doing a series of teachings or talks that are based on some big stories. Um, and somehow I've become a storyteller. I've always loved stories. Um, and so um, it feels like a, a beautiful and a fruitful way to, to teach. So I have at least one long story and maybe some other stories to tell tonight to weave in for your reflection and your understanding. And the theme tonight is the theme, um, going back to one that I've taught in previous years, is the theme of healing and in particular of the quality of mindfulness or mindful loving awareness that brings both healing and liberation. And if you look at the text, the great discourse on the path of mindfulness that's ancient teachings from the Buddhist text. It begins, my friends, there's a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, and end end pain and anxiety, travel the path of awakening, and realize liberation. And this is the establishment of mindfulness, of mindful loving awareness, established in four ways. A practitioner establishes mindful loving awareness in the body, in feelings, in thought and in the mind, and then last in the dharma, in the principles that govern life. And when you become mindful and aware of these dimensions of your human life, this becomes a gateway for your own well-being, happiness, liberation, joy, and of course healing. So to set the tone in some way for the story that will come shortly, um, when I was living in Southeast Asia for a number of years as a Buddhist monk and also in the Peace Corps on working on um, kind of remote village uh, tropical medicine teams, I went to South Vietnam during what we call the Vietnam War, what they call the American War, because they had a whole series of wars with the French, and we were one of them. Anyway, um, and I went in part to go to a temple that was run by the coconut monk, he was called, who lived primarily on coconuts, and it was an island in the Mekong Delta, um, an island of peace. And he was a great peacemaker monk, and I wanted to learn from him and his community. So I took a boat through the Mekong Delta, and it was a time where there was quite a lot of fighting. So you could see helicopter gunships and firefights in the horizon and so forth. 
And the odd thing, for those of you who have the experience of being around war and so forth, is that it takes place here and then other people are shopping and doing the things that they need to do to keep their life going someplace in the next village because we're human beings and we still have to live. So the boat pulled up to the dock and I went into the temple and the monks were wearing robes that had a patch on them that had a broken assault rifle broken in half, and it said in a half a dozen languages, we will fight no more. It was a kind of a refuge in the middle of the war. Um, and I went, I paid my respects and found uh, some of the teachings. And at the far end of this island, there was a hill. And on the top of the hill was a very big statue of Buddha standing there. I don't know how tall, 40 feet or something like that. And next to him was the 40-foot-tall statue of Jesus, and they had their arms around each other's shoulders. And there's the helicopter gunships, and there's all the battle, you know. And this was the place where people would come, young men who didn't want to enter the military um, and become monks in order to be peaceful. And it was as if those two statues were standing there saying, hey, we're bros, we're brothers in this, and there's another way to live in this world. Um, than what you see out there. And it was really beautiful. And what's true is both the Buddha and Jesus were known as great healers and the great physicians, healers of body, healers of heart, and healers of spirit. So healing and beyond healing, not just healing of the body, but healing of who we are as human beings together, comes, first of all, out of a capacity for deep listening, for a sense of connection with life that lets us understand. So here's the first story. And it's from a wonderful professor at the medical school at Yale University named Richard Selzer, who's also a beautiful essayist. And I got a note from him a few years ago because I read some of his stories, and he was really grateful that I read his stories. And I just felt honored that I got this note from him. So here's the story. On the bulletin board in the front hall of the hospital where I work at Yale appeared an announcement. Yeshe Dundon at Red will make rounds at 6 o'clock on June 10th. The particulars were then given, followed by a notation, Yeshe Dundon is the personal physician to the Dalai Lama. I am not so leathery a skeptic that I would knowingly ignore an emissary from the gods. Not only might such an attitude be inimical to one's earthly well-being, it could take care of eternity as well. And thus, on the morning of June 10th, I joined the clutch of white coats doctors waiting in the small conference room adjacent to the ward selected for rounds. The air in the room is heavy with ill-concealed dubiety and suspicion of bamboozlement. <laughs> you can picture it. At precisely six o'clock, he materializes. A short, golden, barrelly man dressed in a sleeveless robe of saffron and maroon, his scalp is shaven, and the only visible hair is a scanty black line above each hooded eye. He bows in greeting while his young interpreter makes the introduction. Yeshe Dundon, we are told, will examine a patient selected by a member of the staff. The diagnosis is unknown to Yeshe Dundon as it is to us. The exam of the patient will take place in our presence, after which we will reconvene in the conference room where Yeshe Dundon will discuss the case. We are further informed that for the past two hours, Yeshe Dundon has purified himself by bathing, fasting, and prayer. I, having breakfast well, performed only the most sultry of ablutions and given no thought at all to my soul, glance furtively at my fellows, Suddenly we seem a soiled, uncouth lot. <laughs> the patient had been awakened early and told she was to be examined by a foreign doctor and had been asked to produce a fresh specimen of urine, so when we entered her room, the woman showed no surprise. She has long ago taken on that mixture of compliance and resignation that is the face of chronic illness. 
this was to be but another in an endless series of tests and examinations. Ashley Dundon steps to the bedside while the rest of us stand apart, watching. For a long time he gazes at the woman, favoring no part of her body with his eyes, but seeming to fix his glance at a place just above her supine form. I, too, study her. No physical sign or obvious symptom gives a clue to the nature of her disease. At last he takes her hand, raising it in both of his own. Now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, his head drawn down into the collar of his robe. His eyes are closed as he feels for her pulse, and in a moment he has found the spot, and for the next half hour he remains thus, suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the women, woman beneath his fingers, cradling her hand in his. All the power of the man seems to have been drawn down into this one purpose. It is palpation of the pulse raised to the state of high ritual. From the foot of the bed where I stand, it is as though he and the patient have entered a special place of isolation, of apartness, about which a vacancy hovers and across which no violation is possible. After a moment, the woman rests back on, upon her pillow, and from time to time she raises her head to look at the strange figure above her, then sinks back once more. I cannot see their hands joined in a correspondence that is exclusive, intimate, his fingertips receiving the voice of her sick body through the rhythm and throb she offers at her wrist. But all at once I am envious. Not of him, not of Yeshe Dundon for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, touched so, received. And I know that I, who have palpated a hundred thousand pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, Leshe Dundon straightens, gently places the woman's hand upon the bed and steps back. The interpreter produces a small wooden bowl and two sticks. Ashley Dundon pours a portion of the urine specimen into the bowl and proceeds to whip the liquid with two sticks. This he does for several minutes until a foam is raised. Then bowing above the bowl, he inhales the odor three times. He sets the bowl down and turns to leave. All this while he has not uttered a single word. As he nears the door, the woman raises her head and calls out to him in a voice at once urgent and serene. Thank you, doctor, she says, and touches with her other hand the place he had held on her wrist as though to recapture something that had visited there. Yeshi Dundon turns back for a moment to gaze at her, then steps into the corner, into the corridor. Rounds are at an end. We are seated once more in the conference room. Yeshe Dundon speaks now for the first time in soft Tibetan sounds I've never heard before. He's barely begun when the young interpreter begins to translate the two voices in tandem, a bilingual fugue, one chasing the other, like the chanting of monks. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers, eddying, these vortices are in his blood, he said, the last spendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of the heart, long, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened. Through it charged the full waters of her river as the mountain stream cascades in the springtime, battering, knocking loose the land, and flooding her breath. Thus he speaks, and now we are silent. May we have the diagnosis, the professor asks. The host of these rounds, the one man who knows, answers. Congenital heart disease. Interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, that must not be opened. 
through it charges the full waters that flood her breath. So here then is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. He's more than doctor, he's a priest. I know the doctor to the gods is pure, pure healing. The doctor to humans stumbles, most often wounds. Their patients must die as must they. But now and then it happens, as I make my own rounds, that I hear the sound of his voice like an ancient Buddhist prayer, its meaning long since forgotten, only the music remaining. And then a jubilation possesses me, and I feel myself touched by something divine. I had a chance to be with Yeshe Dundon, oh, some years ago when I was dealing with a neurological problem and got misdiagnosed, so it seemed way more serious than it turned out to be, fortunately. And I went to see him. He took my pulses and looked at me and scanned me, and I was like, in heaven, okay, Yeshe Dundon, fix me. You know, I have a bad diagnosis that turned out not to be so. And he shook his head. He said, it's not bad, really. Here, take these little pills. They sort of look like rabbit poop, basically. These little kind of dark Tibetan medicine things. And Take these and do these meditations and you'll be fine. And somehow I felt much better even without taking that medicine, just seeing, just seeing him. But there's something in this story about our wish to be so held, so received, so respected as a human being um, by one another that I find inspiring and, and moving. And in fact, the whole world, the world itself, our family, our gardens, our co-workers, I mean, whatever the circumstance, the prisoners and the laborers and the guards and the co-workers and the managers and the parents and the teens and the grandparents, people actually do want to be received and understood and known. And Yeshe Dundin in some way shows the power of the listening heart, even in the face of the great reality of impermanence and suffering and illness and death, which it turns out is going to happen to you. By the way, if it hasn't yet, it's coming, really. I'm just just giving you a little hint here, right? But it is, it's part of human incarnation. It's what's happened. But in the same way, it also talks about what does it mean to pay attention in a world that's riven by injustice and racism and conflict and climate difficulty and all these kinds of things. How do we listen to the pulse of the world? How do we listen to one another? I remember when I was sitting with a woman who was um, toward the end of her very painful chemotherapy, and she she had advanced metastatic cancer. Um, and she said the chemo was like fire moving through her body. It was so painful. Um, it was like being in hell. And so I sat with her and I held her hand for a while and then I invited her to close her eyes as best she could and imagine somehow that that medicine that was coming through her um, was also purifying her, that it was leading her to a different body and a different way of being. And we did a whole long visualization of a great healing temple and all these things. But as she did it, she said, wow, yes, I can feel the fire. But when I feel it as something purifying, that it comes surrounded by this beautiful green light and this lovely spirit, and all of a sudden I realized that this is exactly what I need for my body. And it was the fact that she'd been resisting it, and understandably it was terribly painful and terribly frightening, but somehow as she let herself come close to it, like Leshe Dundon touching that pulse, it transformed in some remarkable way. And people transform when we let ourselves come close to them. Basically, loving awareness allows us to have a trust 
and the greater capacity of the heart to hold this human incarnation with all its tainted glory, its beauty and its pain, um, in a very different way when we listen deeply. So the foundations of mindfulness or mindful loving awareness that I read in that little piece of the ancient text on mindfulness of body, of feelings, of mind and dharma. Let me talk about them each as a reflection for you. Loving awareness of what is called the body in the body, not you know, some idea, but the direct experience. Now, there are different ways we can approach our human body. One is we can fear for it, worry about it, grasp it, kind of, you know, live with a kind of bodily anxiety. Another is we can disassociate from it and kind of just go about our business and not care about our bodies. If I were to ask, a lot of hands would go up on that side. It's the, the line from James Joyce that I often use of his character, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, right? And you get kind of one or the other. And then you're out of touch. But what happens is you're invited to meditate. And meditation isn't to become a good meditator. It's really a training to become present for your own life. As you said, the invitation is to be with this body and to listen to it and learn from it. And so what you'll notice is that you sit and there's sensations of pleasure and pain. Anybody not have that? Right? And they're not a mistake necessarily. They're the body showing itself to you. They're part of it. As you sit... um, with those, you can also begin to notice that if you resist the pain and contract around it, if you look closely, it lasts longer and you suffer more. But if you can receive the physical pain in your body with loving awareness and say, yes, just as you would hold a crying child, all right, I have this new grandson who's now three months old, so I've been doing a bunch of diaper changes and, you know, things like that. But once the kid is fed and diapered and whatever, and they're still crying, what do you do, you know? You hold them, and you give that sense of holding bodily bodily care, and after a while, ah, okay, and then they kind of settle down. And in some way, that same loving awareness can be brought to this body, to the place that's hurt, to the tension that you carry because you go through the day and there are difficulties and things and then your jaw tightens and your shoulders get tight and, you know, you're back and then you sit. You're trying to be very quiet and easeful and your body hurts. And it's not because you're meditating wrong. It's saying, hey, remember me? You've, like, tightened me. Now it's time for all this to release itself. It will release when you bring a loving awareness to it. It opens, it heals itself in some deep way. So the question is, how do you touch this body? Do you touch it with fear or longing or love? There's something kind of beautiful and pure about bringing attention to the body without judgment. And it's not an easy thing because the whole culture is selling you how a body should look. You know, the magazine cover ones that are done in the right light with makeup and then airbrushed on top of it, right? And photoshopped. I mean, that is nuts. And then we think, okay, I look in the mirror. I don't look like that. Something is wrong with me, you know. I'm the wrong color. I'm the wrong size. My thighs are too thin or too thick or my hair, what's left of it, isn't in the right place. And I mean, you know, the culture teaches us to judge our body rather than to love it. And this is a radical act when the Buddha said there is a healing that takes place when you bring a loving awareness to the body. 
to that which is painful and also that which is joyful and beautiful because the body is an instrument of tremendous joy and ease. And when you bring a good spirit into the body, the body can feel it and says, okay, you remembered me. You care for me, even if the world is saying, your body and your body, nah, you know, you're not cover material, right, or whatever. Your body's saying, oh, like, yes, you've done it. It feels the love. Okay, here's a different story, just for the fun of it. This is more the spirit of it, but I'm thinking about this also because I have some dear friends who've been in the hospitals lately visiting. I'm 92 years old, all right. I get up every morning at 7 a.m. Each day I remind myself, wake up, get up. I talk to my legs. Legs, get moving. Legs, you're an antelope. It's a matter of mind over matter. You have to have the right spirit. I'm out on the street, 7.30 a.m. sharp. I'm wearing my honorable sanitation commissioner badge they gave me from City Hall. I'm alert, I'm ready, I'm out there. I got my whistle. My job is to help get parked cars off the streets so they can bring in the sanitation trucks and the Wayne broom, the big one, 30 grand for a broom. So when I sh- when they show up, I go around blowing my whistle to get people to move their cars. I have a great time. <laughs> people are asleep, they're busy with business, they're t- busy taking time off from the business, they're busy having a good time, they're busy not having a good time, whatever, I don't care, I blow my whistle, it's all o- I'm all over the place. I don't discriminate either. I go after the sanitation men too. The union got them a coffee break, some coffee. They're having eggs, having bacon, having toast. They're having French toast. I kid them about it. Then I go right in the restaurant and blow my whistle. They love it. Everybody, they understand. Everybody loves it. Everybody understands. It's the whistle that gets them. Sometimes I'm having such a laugh, I can't blow it. And then I get back to work. Schleppers, get moving. We got to clean the city. This used to be a beautiful city. People cared. If you didn't pay your rent, the sheriff would come and put your furniture out on the street, but the poorest of the poor would come automatically and drop their pennies and nickels at your house and put you back into your apartment. That's neighborhood. That's connection. Now it's different. Things have gotten out of kilter. Hard to say why. People seem to be lost in their thoughts, in their own lives. I see them on the streets, not present. Not that I'm all that different. I'm a schlep myself. I have as many bad habits as anyone. You should see my apartment. Me, Mr. Clean, but I'm trying. 92 and I'm still trying. It's all possible. What can I tell you? I'm not a saint or a wise man. I'm not the 2,000-year-old man. I'm only 92 years old, just a senior citizen. But what do I know that everybody doesn't know? We know. I just go out there in the morning and blow my whistle. That's what I do. You do what you do, me, I'm having a great time, wonderful fun. And when people see how much fun I'm having, they have to laugh. What else can they do? And then I hit them with it. Move your car. (laughs) There's something in it about what it means to love your life. To listen as Yeshe Dundon does, but also to feel that the spirit of your life is part of inhabiting this human body and to do it with mindful loving awareness so close your eyes for a minute you don't don't change your posture don't don't get weird weird in it just close your eyes it's all right and it's just a simple reflection as you get quiet what in your body wants to be listened to what part of your body And it might be for healing, or joy, or attention. What does it have to say to you? And sense how you can be present for your body with its pleasures and its joys and its pains and its illness, all of the life of this body with a free spirit, with attention and care.
and respect. Now it turns out that this very same loving awareness of the body is also required for awareness of the body of the earth. Because it turns out your body isn't separate from the body of the earth. Every breath you take dusted Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa as it came over the Pacific and also it dusted the Fukushima nuclear reactor. It's the reality of it. And the water that you drink you know, the rainwater that comes, picks up the pollution in China or India, you know, or Europe or wherever it is, it carries it. Um, we are completely interwoven, and you don't want to get a little weirder. The breath that you're breathing in this room, all those other people breathe before you. You know, it's actually very intimate. When you go, that was what she just did with that breath and him and stuff like that. <laughs> kind of creepy, right? But the fact is that we are in it together. And the whole notion of separateness. So it's not just your body, it's the earth's body. Um, and to be able to pay attention to your own physical body in the way that we talked about that brings healing, it also brings healing to the earth. And I just came back from this conference, Wisdom 2.0. I might talk a little more about it, of technology and mindfulness and a few thousand people, people from Silicon Valley and so forth. And of course, climate change. And some of the big problems were there on the stage, the problems with technology itself, but the problems with climate change, the problem with continuing warfare and continuing racism and injustice and economic injustice. How do we tackle these things? And the first thing, of course, is to see them clearly. Here's the problems. But then to begin to listen more deeply, is there is there a way to hold them with mindfulness, with loving awareness that allows to re- us to respond differently. So a couple months ago, or a few months ago, when there was a big climate summit in San Francisco that was held by the state of California, we had a climate day here at Spirit Rock. A few of you might have come to it. And I was up here in a dialogue with a really remarkable woman named Christi- Christiana Figueras, who is a diplomat from Costa Rica. Um, now mostly been in Europe, and she is or was the United Nations Special Representative for Climate Change. So she helped to organize the Rio Summit, and then she organized the Paris Climate Meeting. But she said as she'd been doing her work, she was getting more and more depressed, partly because of the science that's showing how fast things are happening, Partly also because the actors, I guess they call them, like in a bad Shakespearean play, the the bad actors, which was like a lot of the big countries, and you know who is included in that, right? As Miss Piggy would say, moi, right? It's the U.S. Um, you know, how recalcitrant people were and how selfish, really, in certain ways. So she was really depressed. She told this story. And she said, then someone, you know what you need to do. You need to go to Plum Village. Plum Village is Thich Nhat Hanh's center, the great Japanese Zen, uh, sorry, me, Vietnamese Zen master place in, in uh, southern France. So she went to Plum Village. She began to practice. And if any of you ever been with Thich Nhat Hanh and seen him walk, it changes your life. Your body goes, whoa, that's what it means to walk mindfully. It's just intense and wonderful. He's so amazingly present. And then he sits down with this calm and very, very deep sense of presence and, con- and conversation. He embodies in somehow um, what it means to be present on the earth. And she said she sat and she walked and that already began to soothe her heart. And then she realized, as she listened to the teachings, she understood the very deep teachings of interdependence, that every breath and every drink of water and the earth that we walk on, that we're all in this together in a very different way than she had understood. And Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, gave to her, through those practices, um, 
kind of revived her spirit to realize that there's another way of seeing all of this. So she said, when I went back to the Paris Climate Accord, she said everyone was in their corner struggling, and the paradigm was the victims and the perpetrators, which countries were doing it to who. And she said, I was able to shift the narrative so that instead of victims and perpetrators, we talked about interdependence. And that shift in my own consciousness and the narrative allowed 148 countries to sign on to the Paris Climate Accord. So you understand, like Yeshe Dundon feeling that pulse or her going to Plum Village, that to begin to listen to the pulse of the earth, then we respond in a different way. It teaches us this from Mary Oliver, how I go to the woods. Ordinarily, I go to the woods alone with not a single friend, for they are all smilers and talkers and therefore unsuitable, I would add, if not untruth. I thought the line first said untruthful because words don't really capture it. I don't really want to be witnessed talking to the catbirds or hugging the old black oak tree. I have my way of praying, as you no doubt have yours. Beside, when I'm alone, I can become invisible. I can sit on the top of a dune as motionless as an uprise of weeds. Until the foxes run by unconcerned, I can hear the almost unhearable sound of the roses singing. If you've ever gone to the woods with me, I must love you very much. <laughs> but this is, this is really that same story of Yeshe Dundon. It's Mary Oliver, our great poet, talking about sitting there and feeling the pulse of life. And then using that love and understanding to make her art, to make her contribution to what allows us to reawaken and reimagine and live, live, uh, live this, live this world in a different way. Oh, so many more things I could say about that. But all right, the next dimension of mindfulness, yes, is mindfulness of feeling. As Don Juan says to Carlos Castaneda, the most difficult part of the sorcerer's way is to realize that the world is a feeling. Now that's a really mysterious statement, isn't it? What could he mean by that? Well, William O. Douglas, Supreme Court Justice, said some years ago that at the Supreme Court where I work, 90 plus percent of the of our decisions are made about, um, are based on how we feel about things. And the other 10% is used to justify our feelings. Our life revolves around feeling. It directs our love, our longing, our hate, our fear, all of those kinds of things. And the gift of loving awareness is that we can begin to actually know this domain of feelings and not just be caught up in them. Just like you don't have to be afraid of the pain in your body or some people are so loyal to their suffering, they're afraid of the joy in their body. They don't know how to dance. In the same way, you can learn to tolerate and actually love all the feelings, the sad and the grief and the longing and the loneliness and the joy and the excitement and the appreciation and the wonder all of this, this whole river, I have a whole list of 500 emotions, you know, and feelings that starts with affectionate and ambitious and aggressive and anguished and ambivalent and angry and amused and amorous and aversive and antagonistic and antsy and ap apathetic and apoplectic and anxious and appreciative and antsy, oh, sorry, and argumentative and adamant and addled and amazed and blissful, broken, blissful, broken-hearted, bonkers, bored, bad, belligerent, brave. You know, it's wild, the feelings. Um, C.S. Lewis says, we live with, uh, it, within us is a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. That's sort of his, you know, looking at the dark side of it all. 
But then we have this thing from the front of the Wall Street Journal, one issue, that says so young and so many pills of the tens of millions of prescriptions for um, young kids, ADHD medicine, um, antidepressants, and so forth. And it's not that they don't have their value at times, but a lot of times it's like just some little kid, some little boy or girl, whose body's full of energy and they shouldn't be sitting at a desk for, you know, all day long. You shouldn't either, actually, but that's another story. Um, and they just need to go out and run around and hang out with the trees and, you know, play. Um, okay, let's give them some meds and chill them out. So it makes them a little more, you know, manageable or something like that. So the liberation that comes... Um, neuroscience talks about expanding the window of tolerance so we can actually tolerate our humanity, our joys and sorrows, our anger and fear and longing and love. And then when we receive them as if a bow, we become the space that has a choice. Because without that, we just are thrown around by each. We're like a boat without a rudder. But when you have established the sense of loving awareness, you can bear witness to the flood of feelings and you also can choose which to respond to and how and when you meditate they will come you're there just watching your own breath right and you feel all the tensions in your body that will come you know your body says remember me and then the emotions come and the unfinished business of the heart will come the grief, the love that you haven't expressed, the creativity that bubbling up in you, all those things that happen, you know, and your task somehow is to make a space that knows them with loving awareness so that like Yeshe Dundin, you're listening to the pulse of your own heart and your own psyche. And this starts to bring a liberation. First, because you see that we all have it. Anybody here never been depressed? I don't believe you, right? <laughs> they didn't even try to raise their... You know, we we had them all. Anybody here not been lonely? When we were in England, Trudy and I were in Parliament doing some teaching, and, you know, we got to talk to people. They, they had just appointed the Minister of Loneliness in England. I'm sure you read about that, you know. And then we have a friend from Harvard Medical School who has something called the Unloneliness Project to try to reconnect people with the world and one another. But this is this is it. This is human life. You have it. And you can either get lost in it and frightened and so forth, or with the liberation of loving awareness, you can allow yourself to be present for it, uh, you know, and not be afraid to weep and to feel the tears that we all carry. And also not to be afraid to be tender with the world, because it's your world. You know, the world is your lover in a way that almost nothing else is. It's always here. You can go out and kiss the earth, really. The astronauts who were lost in space for a while, there were a couple of Russian astronauts who were at the, I don't know, International Space Station, and their capsule didn't work right, and there was a very good chance that they weren't going to make it back. And they went through the fiery descent, and somehow they did manage to get back. And they landed in Kazakhstan, and they got out of their space capsule, and they got down, and they literally kissed the dirt. They said, from up there, there's nothing more than you want than just to be back on this on this earth. It's so, you know, to see this blue earth and know everything you care about comes out of it and to return. So this is the body of the earth, but it's also emotions and feelings. That There's a deep healing that comes when you can weep your tears and feel your joy, you know, and stay present for it um, and allow yourself to feel the, the, the trauma that you've carried and at the same time know that it's not the end of the story because it isn't. You have suffered and you will suffer more. It's part of being a human being, just as you will have joy. That's the game. And um, the Sufis say, overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of pain that was trusted in, entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, you are each part of her heart, and therefore each called upon to hold your measure of cosmic pain. 
you are called upon to meet it with compassion instead of self-pity. Instead of saying, oh, poor me. It's like we're in this together and you can hold this life with the great heart of compassion. Gosh, which story to tell. There's something so mysterious about it, all of this, you know. Um, let your eyes close again without moving. And let yourself know what it is that is true in your heart and your feelings that wants your loving attention. The unbearable beauty of the world, the ocean of tears. And know that you can hold it all with loving awareness, like that famous Ojibwe phrase, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. It's really a conversation with the heart, a deep listening. And it's this capacity that allowed Nelson Mandela to transform the suffering of 27 years in prison and come out with such magnanimity and compassion, changed South Africa and the world, that allowed Wangari Matai in prison to come out and finish inspiring people to plant 50 million trees in the Green Belt and Nairobi and around. Um, it's your capacity to hold all of the, your human feelings and not take them so personally. You're going to have them all. Um, and they don't define you. They actually become the energy of your life. So body and feelings, liberation with feelings, liberation with the mind, the thoughts. Who is your enemy? Mind is your enemy. No one can harm you more than your own mind untrained, not even the worst enemy. Who is your friend? Mind is your friend. No one can help you more than your own mind trained, not even the most loving partner or parents or family. This is the deal. You have this mind. And the wonderful thing with mindfulness and loving awareness is with the mind, you can observe the mind. And you can see it in, um, as Muriel Ruckheiser, the great poet, said, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. It is the way we see it and tell ourselves that it is that leads our life. And you can begin to see the stories that are told in there. And they can be stories of defeat, stories of victimhood. They can be stories of, you know, superhero, fantastic stories. They can be stories of the great mother or the prodigal son or the, you know, the noble defeated activist. I mean, we have a million stories that we tell about ourselves. All of them are kind of limited in a way because they're only stories. And you can't be limited to a story. Remember what Mark Twain said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? <laughs> you see, the story makes, that's how the 
fearful mind works because fear is about something that hasn't happened yet, right? So I was sitting, I had the pleasure of sitting with Jerry Brown um, some weeks ago at a party for one of our mutual friends who's a really remarkable person. But anyway, so we were sitting at the table, a few folks, and I asked him what he was going to do when he retires, and as it's in the papers, yeah, he's going to go to his grandfather's ranch up in the foothills of the Sierras, and he said, and nobody's going to bother me. They only care about you when you have power. When you're out, they just don't care. They don't even, he said, so it's going to be fine. I said, well, do you, you know, what about legacy beside all you've done? Because he has done a lot of very wonderful things. Um, he said, well, I'm concerned about two things. I'm concerned about um, climate change. And I do want to do what I can about that because it's really important. And the other thing he said, I'm concerned about nuclear weapons. This was even before we pulled out of that treaty. He said, because there's 14,000 nuclear warheads around the world, and they're in all these different places. And um, he's on the bulletin of atomic scientists that has that little doomsday clock. We know we're two minutes to midnight or whatever. So he's really concerned. He said, but they don't know what to do. People aren't paying attention to it. And we have to do something. So I thought about it, and I reflected, and then I said, you know, I, I want to tell you, it was turned out that I am going to send you this story. So here's the story. In ancient India, um, the gods create the world, and Brahma is the creator god, and Vishnu the sustainer, and Shiva is the destroyer in the Hindu pantheon, right? And universes get created for an eon or a billion eons, and then they dissolve, and then a new one's created out of nothing. That's how it works. If you haven't noticed that, everything's created out of nothing. It really is, you know. And then it disappears into nothing. What happened to Y2K? <laughs> what happened to 2018? It disappeared into the void. What happened to this morning's breakfast? Well, that's still in there. But what happened to yesterday or last week or January? It's just gone. It's wild. Stuff appears. Life appears. And then it disappears. Anyway. So the gods created the world, and um, when the world is created, it's both gods and demons. You may have noticed that. There's some balance of good and evil and you know joy and sorrow and light and dark and birth and death. It's duality to create life. If you have birth, you have death. Uh, everything with its opposite. And then there are the battles between the gods and the demons. But in this particular universe that had been created here, the demons were winning, were winning, at least as this story went. And the gods tried everything, and the demons had more power and were winning. And then finally, one of, them, one of the gods said, all right, all right, we've done all that we can. We have to call Durga. And Durga is the goddess, she's the, she's the mother of Kali, if you've heard of Kali. In Calcutta, there's a big temple to her. She's the one that wears all the necklace of skulls and things like that. Kali is badass, you know. <laughs> anyway, and that's just one of her kids, right? So we have to call Durga. And out of the Himalayan mountains appears Durga with many arms, and in each arm, some weapon, some skillful means, something and she she goes right toward the demons, and it takes her a while to clean a clean house, as she does. But unlike the rest of the, the those who had tried, she eventually not only defeats the demons in some way, but also removes their fire from the world. And so then I said to Jerry, I said, maybe... Um, all the men that have been working on these weapons and all the men who've been trying to um, stop this um, don't have the answer, and maybe it's time to call the mothers. And maybe it's time for the mothers and the grandmothers to come out, and maybe there's some whole other energy of life that can save us in a way that men haven't been able to do. So I tell you the story, 
and I also have to say I was very pleased because I think what can what can a contemplative say to you know to to me I, I like Jerry a lot but who's you know in the political world but it felt like it was actually it had a kind of wisdom in it um, you know got lucky whatever but. But what you can hear in it is how limited we are by our stories, our personal stories and our collective stories. And the collective stories right now include stories about economic justice or the climate change, the problems we we face, tribalism, continuing conflict, racism. Some of them are really crazy stories, but we've been repeating them for generations and we're locked into them and we do that within ourselves. So instead, the healing comes when we can step back personally and begin to look at what are the stories. And then as the Dalai Lama says, mm, some of these stories do not have my best interest in mind, some of these thoughts. Some of them are really creative ones. Some of them maybe not so creative thoughts you have, you know, those repeated patterns. And by becoming the loving awareness, you are no longer lost in the thoughts you actually have a choice. So close your eyes for a second. Don't have to move. And with loving awareness, let yourself become aware of what are the predominant stories that you tell about yourself and about the world. And do you take them seriously? Do you really believe them? Because they're only partial truths, you know. And this is not fighting, but becoming the healing space of the heart. And feel that healing awareness that can hold it all And as Thomas Merton says, there is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence beyond thought that is a fountain of action and joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out to me from the unseen roots of all creation. And so as you see the thoughts also begin to rest in the silent, loving awareness, the vastness that is your true nature, that can know the mind without getting lost in it, without being so identified. And perhaps, again, going back to the image of Yeshe Dundon, you can feel what it's like to listen in to your own mind with that same respectful and careful attention. Not judging, but making the space of loving awareness to say, oh yes, this is the conditioning, this is the things that have repeated, this is what I've learned, this is what appears, this is healthy. This is not so helpful. Because your heart knows things that your mind can't know. And your heart knows what's healthy and what's wise for you in a ways that you can't think your way out of. So the last of those foundations of mindful loving awareness is that mindfulness of the Dharma, which is a word that means the truth, the way things are, the laws of the universe, and so forth. And this is really at the center of the awakening that's offered through mindfulness. To find a place within reality and within our experience that can see suffering and joy, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, birth and death, arising as they do. Because this is what human incarnation offers you. And to become the great heart of compassion and spacious wisdom that says, yes, 
Remember when you read Siddhartha in high school and it ended up, you know, after he had his love affair with Kamala and all those things, um, it ended up him sitting by the river, seeing all the different voices of joy and sorrow and gain and loss and so forth, and being finally at ease and as all of the river went by. He allowed it all to pass through him in some way, but he didn't bind himself or get caught in one or another perspective or one another of those voices. And then, as I believe it says in the translation, then all of a sudden it became a a kind of harmony. And it wasn't the harmony that you don't care or that you don't go out and mend the places that need mending or stand up for justice. But you do it in a really different way. It's because it's your family. It's your earth. It's your children. Not because you're angry at anybody, but because you know better. Because it's you. And it comes from a place of love. And love is really the only thing that's gonna, that has the power that's gonna really make a difference in this world. So this is a shift of identity. A bear paced up and down the 20-foot length of its cage when after 15 years the cage was removed to give the bear a bigger open place to live. The bear continued to pace up and down the 20 feet length as if the cage were still there. So we can live in a kind of conditioned way, our small sense of self, our thoughts, or the way we define ourselves. But it's not who you are. When you go in the bathroom or bedroom and look in the mirror, you notice you've aged, right? Face it, okay? (laughs) You're losing fur here, you're getting extra fur there, you're drooping over there. I mean, it's just what it does, okay? But the weird thing is that you don't necessarily feel older. You know that experience? Like, like, wow, look at that. Look at what it's now. It's wrinkling over there and drooping that way, whatever. Okay. And that's because it's only your body that's aged. Your body's born as an infant and a small child and a, you know, an adolescent and a young adult, older and older, and then it gets, starts to fall apart and then it dies and it goes back to the earth, one form or another, right? What bodies do. But in that moment that you say, oh, Hmm, don't feel older. Interesting how it's aging now. It's lost that. As our colleague Wes Nisker says, the hard parts become soft and the soft parts become hard. You know, that's his description. But anyway, what's true in that moment is you become the witness of it. You realize that it's not who you are, that who you are is the spirit that was born into this body and that will also leave in that mysterious moment of death. You'll see. You wait and see. So with deep listening, instead of possessing things, you shift your identity and you become instead the loving awareness itself. You rest in the consciousness so that my teacher, when he went to tell about, tell the greatest master of the time, Ajahn Chah went to this great master to tell him about all his meditation experiences, had this lights and vision and samadhi and so forth. And the master looked back and said, Chah, you missed the point. Those are just experiences. They're like movies, a war movie and a romantic comedy and a documentary and, you know, a superhero movie. He said, they're just movies. The only question is to whom do they happen? Who is witnessing or seeing all this? Turn your attention back and become the one who knows the knowing. Become the awareness itself. And that is your gateway to freedom. Oh, nobly born, begin the Buddhist text. Remember who you really are. You are fundamentally free. You have a fundamental dignity and nobility that no one can take from you. And this is called the laughter of the wise. It says, yeah, it's all, you know, it's quite a dance. And we suffer at times, it's true. And we love and we let go and all those kind of things. But from this place of wisdom, I say, oh, this is really a dance of life. And rather than holding on to it, we can see it for what it is and rest in the place of 
witnessing, of loving awareness. You are the loving awareness that was born into you. We can rest in the great heart of compassion. Not because you're supposed to, but because it's your home. And there's something in each of us that longs for freedom. And that freedom isn't found in the Himalayas or some Zen temple or, you know, wherever you can imagine it be. There's only one place where it can be found, you know, and that is within in your own heart. Mary Oliver again to end. What can I say that I've not said before? So I'll say it again. The leaf has a song in it. Stone is the face of patience. Inside the river there's an unfinishable story and you are somewhere in it and it will never end until all ends. Take your busy heart to the art museum and the chamber of commerce, but take it also to the forests and the hills. The song you heard singing in the leaf when you were a child is singing still. I am of years lived so far, 74, and the hills and the leaf are singing still. It's such a gift to be able to quiet ourselves, to learn meditation, not to become a meditator, but to become a, to get real, to become a full human being with that great heart of compassion that was born in you with your original dignity and with the invitation of freedom in the midst of it all. And that's, um, that's a true wonder for us. So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for those of you who were listening live stream or upstairs. This is really a reminder to you that there is a way to live. You can think about Thich Nhat Hanh taking a walk and all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is what it's like to walk on this earth and be present. It will serve you. It will serve the people you love. It will serve the things that you care about in all of us. So I appreciate your being here. Um, this is now one of your places, even if you were here for the first night, you can come back any time and walk the hills and listen to the leaves and um, practice with us. Thank you and good night. <laughs>